Welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. Just while we're getting set up, if you can turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning. Just by way of a disclaimer or caveat, I have strained a hamstring muscle. So if you see me hobbling about this morning, it's not some new form of interpretive dance or creative arts ministry that I've kind of embarked on. Um, I'm just believing God to help me. Hallelujah. You know, it's. I was reading the other day in... Um, through the prophet Ezekiel and he says regarding Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16 this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem your ancestry and birth there's no slide for this by the way this is just feeling what God laid on my heart your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites your father was an Amorite your mother was a Hittite on the day you were born your cord is not cut, nor you washed in water and to make you clean, nor you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked at you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, the Lord says, I said unto you, live. God speaks into Jerusalem. God speaks in Israel and says, live. And Jesus Christ says the same to you this morning. Live. I've been thinking about this and the importance of Israel in, in terms of the Christian and in here in Australia because of everything that's going on. I was thinking about that this morning as I got up for breakfast and there was another attack uh, by the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen, from Yemen, rather, on, uh, on another ship, a British ship. It reminded me on January the 5th this year, uh, the MV Bahaja, formerly known as the Ocean Outback, it had with it on, on it some 15,000 sheep and a couple of thousand head of cattle, well and truly over a couple of million dollars worth, and this was headed for Jordan. And so... I'm not going to be political, it's not my job this morning, but, you know, the federal government signed off on this. They knew that there was problems in the region. The problems got so bad that midway through they diverted the ship to South Africa. Once they got to South Africa, they thought, you know what, it's still not going to work, it's still too hot. And so right now they've, uh, they've got a bit of a Mexican standoff because a lot of these sheep could be sick, a lot of the cattle could be diseased. It's dangerous to bring them back now. And then again, when I heard it happening this morning, I began to think, man, there's so much going on in the Middle East. And a lot of Christians, we sort of sit back and we go, you know, I know Israel's important. I know what happens in the Middle East is important. But we get, we get we, because we hear it so much and it's been going for such a while, we get quite ambivalent about it, don't we? Well, that's a long way away. That doesn't affect me here in Ellenbrook. We fail to see the canary in the coal mine or the frog that's slowly boiling away in the frying pan. 
The Bible calls Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And what that simply means is that anyone who would attack her, uh, and a burdensome stone is another metaphor used, would, would go weak at the knees. In other words, it's going to cause you grief. It's going to cause you problems. And so why is Jerusalem important? Why does Israel matter? You know, uh, Charles Dickens' seminal work, A Tale of Two Cities, we often think, uh, the two cities, I think, Paris and London, long time since I've read the book. But you know, the Bible's a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And so I want to look this morning at why it, it matters. A sermon simply called Sacred Spaces. You know, Jesus was crucified and resurrected in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem. The disciples were sent out from Jerusalem. Israel's the only uh, country created by a sovereign act of God. It's the only real estate that God calls holy in Zechariah. It's the only democracy in the Middle East as well. In fact, God says through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 5, verse 5, that I have placed Israel at the centre of the nations. And later on in chapter 38, he calls it the navel of the earth. And so the book that you're holding, the book that you read, the book that you base your life upon has a very, very Israel-centred lens. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to go through that a little bit later on. But I want you to just draw your attention here to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let me just read this text out. I'm pretty sure we've got this one up here. You can follow along if you don't have um, a reading device. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said, and said to him, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place for myself. If my people, I'm just moving down to verse 14 here, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Father, I pray right now by the Holy Spirit that you would just speak into every heart, into every life, Lord, that your word would transform us, help us be teachable and open to all that you want to say and show us how this applies to our everyday practical lives. And I pray this, help us to be saltier and brighter in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just look firstly here at a sacred connection. Because throughout history, there's always been a nexus between God and man. In other words, God has always wanted to interact with us. It's not like we're you know, part of an ant farm that he's got and he just sort of puts us in and shakes us relationship with you and I. And so there's a Latin phrase for this, it's called axis mundi, and it just literally means where the, the, the sky, the heaven, connects with the earth. And so we read throughout the scriptures, certainly many times in the Old Testament, where we see this interaction occur in... in, uh, in, in Jacob, the patriarch, in Genesis chapter 28. I'm not going to read out the entire verse, but God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he needed to hear this because he knew that God was the God of his grandfather, Abraham. He knew that God was the God of his father, but that wasn't enough. God, I need to know that you're my God as well. 
and reveals himself and does this with an extreme thing and he hadn't had pizza that night and it wasn't some bad of body experience but there was a ladder opened up a vision. He saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. In that ladder, we have that ladder as a doorway to our heart to Jesus Christ right now and you can be as close to God as you want to be. Similar to that was Moses' experience with the burning bush. God wanted to manifest to himself. God wanted to manifest himself to Moses and show him that he was with him, to show him that he was going to walk with him and be with him. And then he sees a bush that's burning but not consumed. Moses, Moses, he says in Ezekiel chapter 3, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He repeats those words. And Moses did, for he was af- and, and he was afraid to look before God. And what's interesting there, he tells him to take his sandals off. I want, I want you're on holy ground. I want, your, I want the soles of your feet to be exposed to my presence. You know, the sole of your feet is, is one of the most sensitive parts of your body. And God wants to come into contact with the most sensitive parts of your body. The burning bush was a sacred reminder of the connection that Moses received and the revelation that God wants to minister to his people. But you know, as powerful as both those examples are, the most enduring location from a biblical perspective in the Old Testament was Solomon's temple. And this is where I'm kind of headed this morning, just in case you're wondering. How are we doing? Amen. This was their nexus where God touched earth and that's where we're at in our text here. The temple served as such a point for ancient Israel. And if you were to visit the temple, you would have kind of gained a glimpse of the habitation of God on earth. This was their validation. Everything about the temple, its architecture, its symbolism, conveyed a sense of awe and majesty of the creator. The splendor of the creator. And in our text, our Lord appears to Solomon. You just read that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. They've just dedicated. The temple's been built. It's consecrated. And then what happens? God's validation comes down and he fills it with his presence. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Jews call that the Shekinah or Shekinah. Is a, is a more, is a more of an English way of saying that. And then Solomon sees this, he sees the fire consuming the sacrifice and oh, how that leader's heart must have felt. Oh God, you're with us. So then he has this week-long feast. Solomon's happy. Hallelujah. God's happy. Israel's happy. Everyone's happy. This thing's just, it's just a good zeitgeist, isn't it? It's just, just a really good feel that's going on in Israel at the moment. And so then the Lord appears to Solomon in this kind of state of euphoria and he wants to minister him about the temple. And so I want you to pick this up here in verse 15. Pick up the imagery. He says, my eyes will be open, my ears will be attentive to prayer made in this place. He says, for now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. It's a long time, isn't it? My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Then God listed the terms for his blessing 
at that point, to be upon the Israelites, and I'm going to go back to that a little later on, but before we do list those prerequisites for his blessing, I just need to just cover a little history for you, just so you've got a bit of a glimpse and an understanding of the temple, you need to understand Jerusalem. It's at the core of Israel's existence. And that's why God says, my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. It's why the Western Wall is so important to the Jews, because it's the only remains left of Herod's outside compound wall of the temple. In other words, that's as close as they can get to God's glory. That was as close as they could get to God's presence. So if I can just get you to... I know I've done this before, but if you can just in your mind draw a timeline, go back... Can, I, can we go back about 4,000 years to about 2,000 BC? And uh, we come across Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, father of our spiritual faith. He's commanded by God to sacrifice his son. You remember, you've probably heard that story in Sunday school a thousand times. And so he's about to offer up Isaac. And then the Lord intervenes, reveals his covenant name, Jehovah Jireh, and then we find a substitute. He gets a lamb roaming in a thicket in a bush nearby, and the lamb is sacrif- uh, was sacrificed. What was important was, he, was obedience on Abraham's part. Now, the place where this happened is Mount Moriah. And if you've ever been to uh, Jerusalem, uh, Israel, you'll, you'll know exactly where this is. It's where the, it's where the Temple Mount is today. And uh, you've got the Western Wall there, you've got the Al-Asqua Mosque on top of it, you've also got the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock, um, there it is. I took that photo, by the way. Um, That's where it's sacred to to Muslims, Jews, Christians alike. It's, It's a place where it's thought to be, and I know there's conjecture regarding this, so please don't come up to me afterwards and show me diagrams and charts and stuff. I've spoken to some... I've spoken to some... People who are really on top of this, and I know that they're different in their opinion. But anyway, it's a place here where they believe that Isaac was offered up, and the Jews, they call this the Akedah, uh, the, the, the sacrifice. So during Abraham's time, Jerusalem was called Salem. Remember that character in your Bible called Melchizedek? That's where we see the origins there. Later, a Canaanite tribe come along the Jeb- Jebusites, and they capture it. So now I want you to push your timeline forward to about 1000 BC because God raises up King David and uh, he defeats the Jebusites and he renames, uh, he renames uh, Jebus, which is what the Jebusites would call it, to Jerusalem. That's the origin of the word right there. And so he's anointed king and then he makes Jebus, or what it is now become Jerusalem, the capital and the reason, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Scholars are, are, are fairly unanimous in their opinion. It comes down to a couple. One, the, the, it's elevated for a start. So it's always easy to defend a city from an elevated position. That's just a military uh, maxim. And then you've also got the fact of its access between the northern and the southern tribes. And so it's somewhere during all those tabernacles and their feasts and the dedication services that they could all apprehend and go to. So Jerusalem becomes the capital there. And then further to, the, further to that, he then um, buys a piece of land on Mount Moriah from one of the Jebusites who was still there, whose name was Ornan. 
And Ornan said, uh, no, I want to give this to you. And David was really adamant, and I'm not sure if he knew he was acting out prophecy here. He says, no, 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 I'm going to pay for this. As a sovereign ruler, as a sovereign king, I am buying this. Let's be clear about it. And then so then at that point, David decides to build the temple, but he can't build the temple, and I'm going through history here quite quickly, because he's committed a lot of bloodshed, he hasn't done everything right, so, so the task is inherited by his son Solomon. That's where you are now in Second Chronicles, okay? So it's interesting here, Solomon picks it up, and that's where, as I said, we're at in our text, the Lord appears to Solomon, Second Chronicles, and he says, I've heard your prayer, I've chosen this place myself. So understand, God listens and God responds. And God is responding to Solomon and moving and working with him. So we look at Solomon's temples. This is the first of three that the scripture mentions. Two have existed already and two or possibly one are futuristic and that's for another sermon another time with the tribulation and the millennial temple. Um, but uh, Solomon's temple's glorious. It's validated by God's filling with his presence. Second Chronicles 5.13 and 14 says, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Could you just imagine that? Could you just step back and imagine how powerful that would have been? And Israel at that point enters into its most prosperous time in history. Socially, militarily, religiously, economically, they were like the kingpins. But then what happens when God blesses sometimes with us? We get lifted up, we get full of pride. And so Israel, in its haughtiness and in its pride, backslid. So drive your timeline a bit forward. Now I want to come to 580 BC. And God raises up this Babylonian king. His grandfather, Nabopolassar, uh, ruled Babylon with an iron fist. And, but, but, but his grandson, Nebuchadnezzar, was gaining rapidly as a tremendous military leader. But his most prominent battle during the Battle of Karchemish, where he rises to prominence and pretty soon begins to take over the entire... Uh, well, you know, he defeats Egypt, he defeats the Assyrian Empire and basically he's, they've, they've, they've become the ruling empire of the world and God raises him up and what he does is he, he takes all the choicest children, he levels Jerusalem completely, he burns it to the ground, ransacks it, takes all the temples, takes all the, the articles of gold out of the temple and brings them back into Babylon, takes all the best men, young men away and takes him into Babylon as well. And then the Israelites wept when they remembered Zion. If you remember the, the song from Boniem, By the Rivers of Babylon, it's kind of what it's about right there. Okay, so the second temple happens. If you come, if you, this, this Babylonian Empire lasts for about 75 years and then God raises up uh, an army to beat them. The Persians come along. And so this is about 508 BC and under the rule of Cyrus, First, and then Artaxerxes, they bring the Jews back into Israel, establish postal systems and other forms of government and so on, and they allow them to rebuild the temple. And so what happens is that when they rebuild the temple, the, the older generation look at it and go, oh my goodness, it's nothing like its former glory. The newer generation are kind of excited because we've got something. 
So then push forward again. I want to take you now to 450 years to about 20 BC. And uh, like I said, we're doing history on the run here. There's Herod. He's a Judean king. He's wanting to carry some favour with the Jews. So he says, I'll fix your temple. I'll make it look like it's never looked before. So he, he widens it. He, makes it. he doubles the height. He makes it wider. And it's glorious. It is an absolute work of splendour. That's the temple that Jesus would have walked into. And if you go to Israel today, maybe put it off a few months at the moment. <laughs> um, that's, you'll see the remains of Herod's. And you don't actually see the wall, you see the outside compound wall that's, ex still, that's still existing there. And then we go a little bit forward, Titus 70 AD, uh, the Romans leveled Jerusalem to the ground, the temple's destroyed. Up, just about every part of it except that outside compound wall scattered living as refugees and vagabonds on the earth until 48 when God creates them and creates the nation hallelujah and I've got to move on a bit quicker so not interesting in 1967 when they were attacked by Jordan that's when they regained that temple mount again and for that was the first time that they could actually go back to that wall and pray there. That's why it's so important. And the reason, other reason it's important, because that, 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 that temple, that wall, it reminds them of better days. They pray there today because it reminds them of golden years. A time when they were at peace from their enemies. A time when they were prosperous. A time when they were excited about living for God. When I was at Ben Gurion Airport, the time I went, I remember speaking to a young lady. Uh, she was working in a jewellery store and I was just looking at uh, getting Jill a watch or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And um, I was trying to witness to her and, and talk to her about God and the Bible. And, and she just, with the coldest eyes I've ever seen, said, God has abandoned us. See, that wall reminds them of a better time. What did Solomon's temple have that Herod's didn't? Well, it didn't have the glory of God, did it? And yet they were sacrificing, they were feasting, they were going through all the rituals, they were going through all the motions, functioning, serving God, getting busy for God, but there was no presence of God. And you know what? Saints, we can do the same thing. We've it before. We often run from God by being busy with God. And I'm not saying we need to abandon our ministries and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working in the house of the Lord and serving the Lord, but just stop for a moment and ask yourself the question, hey, God, are you with me? Do I have a sense of your presence here? God, am I making any impact? Are my words penetrating or are they just going down the bottom near my feet let's just look touch quickly here on a sacred covenant because I want to bring this together for us where we're at here now remember the Israelites relationship with God was based on their five senses that's why you had the temple the brazen altars um, you know all these uh, feasts that and, and offerings that had to be kept because God five senses Touch, taste, feel, smell. I think there's five. I've probably forgotten them. But anyway, hearing. Thank you, Jill. <laughs> so in the New Testament, 
we know that that is different, don't we? Because Paul says, and uh, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what is the scripture saying? God's not dwelling in tents and tabernacles today. He's dwelling in you. If you're saved, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Saviour, deity resides. Isn't that a powerful thought? God resides in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the temple in in Scripture was to manifest and reflect the glory of God that's true in the old, how much more in your life now. Your heart is a sacred space in which deity reigns. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for out of it flow the springs of life. So it's a common tradition in the ancient Near East for the heart to be the seat of the intellect and was considered to be the very essence of a person's being. Keep it with all diligence because that's where deity rides. You are the temple of the living God. means his glorious power is going to go and shine through and fill you with his indwelling spirit. Where you walk, you bring the sphere of the kingdom of God with you. Say, the kingdom of God is at hand. The sphere of its influence goes where you go. We ought to be room changers. That just went... We ought to be room changers, saints, because deity resides in us. We have the spirit of God. We've got to be saltier. We've got to be brighter. Let's look quickly here. I'm going to need to move through this um, sacred access. Because in Bible times, certainly in the time of Jesus... If you wanted to go to the temple, you just couldn't walk up there. You can't just sort of, I'm going to go to the temple today. You would need to be, because there were requirements. Now, you'll see a lot of these things. Uh, what they are, they're ritual bars. So the Jews call them a mikvah. You're cleansed before you entered into the temple. You, you, I think one of them, it's, it's got to be at least 200 litres. The water's got to come from an outside source. And there's a couple of other requirements as well. But the point being... You had to approach God on his terms. Now, thank God that salvation is common ground. I'm going to give an invitation this morning for you to come and receive Jesus Christ, and you don't have to have done anything. you just got to admit that you're a sinner. We're not going to ask you to sign a doctrine or a creed. You don't have to fill out 10 steps. You don't have to come attain some kind of level of righteousness because our, our level of righteousness is way short anyway. Yeah? God is not impressed with your resume, but he's not repulsed by your past either. And he will take you just as you are. Thank God for that. But if you're going to be a worshipper and you're going to go on and be a blessing to the kingdom, there are some requirements that God requires of us. That's why he says here, it's not accident. He says, if my people who are called by my name, if you will humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So here's God's requirements. They're laid out for us here in the scripture. What's the first thing he says? If my people will humble themselves. Now, humble comes from 
uh, it's where we, the, the, the etymology, the origin of the word is where we get the word humos, which means earthly, not hummus. There's a lot of that in Israel. I like to eat hummus. But humble people are not self-exalted. doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who God is. And the people who are used by God are the ones who understand this. It's not your education that's impressive. It's not your abilities. It's your heart is a willingness to be used by God. Thomas Merton said, my Lord God, I have no idea. He was a monk, by the way. I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following your, your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. I like that. Prayer, not rooted in humility is powerless. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labour in vain. Someone is likened prayer to being on a rough sea in a small boat with no oars. And all you have is a rope. And somewhere in the distance, that rope is attached to a port. And, and with, with that rope, you just pull yourself back to God. Now, that might be a kind of a more of a Catholic worky kind of thing, but I kind of get what they're saying. Sometimes prayer can be a struggle. And sometimes you can't see with the waves beside you, God, what's going on here. But, you, but, 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 but there's an effort, God, I'm reaching out to you. I want to touch you. I want to touch your throne. I remember years ago in the 90s, um, do you remember the fad, the WWJD? What would Jesus do? <laughs> the bracelets and so on. And uh, I always... I always um, I don't know who thought of it, but someone came up with a sarky, uh, sarcastic photo and it had Jesus in the temple, you know, whipping people and driving him out. And what would Jesus do? I found it funny anyway. But, um, <laughs> but if you think about it, can we be honest here? Does God get angry? He got angry that day. Do you know why he got angry that day? Because you know where they were conducting merchandise? Nothing wrong with conducting merchandise, but it's where they were doing it. They were doing it in the outside court of the temple. You know whose place that was to go? Us, Gentiles, non-Jews. That's the only, that's as far as we could go in the temple. That's why Jesus got angry with them. Because it's meant to be a house of prayer. It's meant to be a place dedicated to the Gentiles. And look what you've done to it. And he drove them out. Now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes to make your vessel a clean vessel of prayer, because that's the central truth, my house shall be called a house of prayer, sometimes the Holy Spirit will drive things out of you. Sometimes it'll be the gentle touch of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it could be quite brutal. The important thing is that you identify your idols and dethrone them. Can you be ruthless with that? Can you let the Holy Spirit speak to you about that? John Owen said, He who prays as he ought will endeavour to live as he prays. The Jews have a saying, You party in Tel Aviv, you work in Haifa, but you pray in Jerusalem. The word of God says, Pray always and not to lose heart. So we pray, we've got to be humble, we've got to pray. Thirdly, we've got to seek God's face. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
So when Moses instructed Aaron how to bless them, he told them, they call this the, the, the blessing in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord, the invocation is what it's called, sorry, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And by saying this, what you're doing, and, and uh, a man would generally do this at, at Shabbat, at Sabbath, and it would invite the blessing of God upon his family. It's called um, Berkat Kohenim. And basically, as I said, fathers would do this in their house. And they would do it, and they had this thing about they would join, they would put up their hands, if you could just move to the next slide, and they would separate, and from the middle and index fingers, and they would hold both hands up. What is interesting, years ago in the 60s when Gene Roddenberry, the TV producer, he asked his actor Leonard Nimoy to come up with a sign, Leonard Nemoy is a Jewish man. He went right into his Jewish roots and that's how he came up with it. Live long and prosper. Who wants to live long and prosper? <laughs> See how many trackies we've got in the house. Hallelujah. What, what's God saying? He's saying when he tells his people to seek his face, he's urging them uh, to live in a way that his face can be turned in that direction. Posture yourself so that God's face can shine upon your life. Everything Jesus did was governed by this principle. Everything Jesus did. You know, even in Gethsemane, when the cup was offered up, he saw all that the cup offered. He saw the sin, the guilt, the pain, an excruciating death, his shed blood, the hell, isolation. He saw all of that and said, God, if you're willing, can you pass this cup from me? Can I just say this, saints? You can be honest with God. Do you know that? You can have a heartfelt, honest conversation with God and tell him what you're feeling. He's not shocked by that. Jesus said, if you can make this pass, but what else did he add to that? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil so then we so we've got we've got to be we've got to be humble we've got to pray we've got to see god's face and finally turn from our wicked ways who's excited about coming to church this morning <laughs> do you remember in the new testament paul pleads for purity he says in second corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 and what agreement has the temple of god with idols you are the temple of the living god I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, be their God, and they shall be my people. So Paul here, what's he appealing to? Look, look, look very carefully with me. He's appealing to a sense of divine lineage, a promise of a sacred space, and a place where God would walk with us. You've got divine indwelling. If you could just move to the next slide. So you've got a divine indwelling in every, in every one of you. You, have a, you put a sense of trust in the Lord and deity resides. Secondly, you've got divine communion. He says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And as God talked with Abraham, he will talk with you. He wants to be a friend. He wants to be a... And you've also got a divine adoption. I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, what I want you to do, if you're reading that, if you've got your Bibles open or you're reading that, I, what I want you to do is, is um, 
Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. He says, therefore, having these promises. Now, if you can do something for me just in a moment, take away the chapters and verse. How many people realise when Paul wrote letters, he didn't sit down and go, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He wrote letters. So we put those division breaks in there for us, for, to help us with our reading. If you remove them out of the way, this is how it reads. It goes... Um, in chapter 6, and what agreement is the temple of God with us for you are the temple of the living God, and God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, therefore, having these promises, what are the promises he's talking about? Divine indwelling, divine communion, divine adoption. Because God is going to walk amongst you, because God is going to dwell inside of you, because you're going to have communion with him, he says, because of these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because of who you are in Christ, that ought to put some limitations on your life. I'm paraphrasing that for you. Having these promises, he's not using the logic of the law nor the logic of threats, but he's appealing to a higher calling, isn't he? Turning from your sin, repenting of your sin... Accepting Jesus Christ, it's not just a ticket to get out of hell. It's an invitation to flourish. Because the benefits, I'm going to dwell amongst you, I'm going to walk in your midst. Paul, notice Paul says, cleanse yourself. It's not a casual approach. There's got to be cleansing the flesh and the spirit if you can separate the pure from the profane, the secular, from the sacred. And notice he says, ourselves, not others. A lot of us think we've been put on your earth to cleanse other people. We can fall and fight with the brethren. We can find fault with the brethren, can't we? We can stab him or her with the sharpest knife of our criticism and miss the beam in our own eye. The Roman statesman Cicero said it's the peculiar quality of a fool to perceive the faults of others and to forget his own. In John... 1 John 1, we read these words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Confession is a lifestyle and not a one-off. Spirit of hatred's got to give way to a spirit of love. Spirit of envy's got to give way to a spirit of generosity. Spirit of competition has got to give way to a spirit of cooperation. A spirit of jealousy has got to give way to a spirit of fellowship. A spirit of bitterness has got to give way to a spirit of forgiveness. Can we do that, saints? And then just we close with this one thought very quickly here. A sacred promise. Verse 15. What does he say in Second Chronicles 7.15? I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. So healing... Throughout the Old Testament, it has a mixture of spiritual and physical applications. Sometimes it related uh, to forgiveness. Other times it was forgive, uh, physical healing. And sometimes it applied to the land, to the nation, to restore it to a place of peace and security. And perhaps here this morning, under the sound of my voice, you need to feel and sense that peace and security that Christ offers in Augustine's Confessions, he says, You have made us fear self, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This morning, let us walk confidently, 
but carefully and cautiously, because your heart, saints, is a sacred space where deity reigns. Amen? Let's just bow our heads, if you don't mind, just in respect to God and to those that are around you. I appreciate your attentiveness. And uh, so enjoying experiencing the presence of God here. Maybe you're a regular in this church and it's, you're, you're here every Sunday morning. Maybe not. Maybe you've wandered in to this building. <coughs> and I believe God has brought you here by divine appointment. And my message to you is really simple. Salvation is common ground. You can come to Christ just as you are. Doesn't matter what mess your life is in. Doesn't matter what you've done. I want to tell you that there's a God who cares about you. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so if that's you this morning under the sound of my voice, I promise you I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not asking you to, uh, to join a church or sign a form or anything like that. But just with an uplifted hand, would you say, Preacher, would you pray for me? Amen. I see that hand. Hallelujah. Anyone else? I need to get my heart right with God. You're unsaved. Maybe you're backslidden. Maybe you once walked with God, but you're away from God. If that's you, just raise your hand. Just so I can see that hand. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. I see those hands. Glory to God. Just honest hearts before the Lord. And you're just going to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Make me whole. Let me experience the joy and forgiveness of sins. So what I'm going to ask right now, if, if, we, if we all don't mind, is that those that raise their hand, can I just see you? Can, I, can your eyes just meet mine? Amen. Can I just ask you to come down the front here, please? And just a gentleman down the back. Every, no one's looking. Every head is bowed. These people are just going to pray. Um, uh, maybe, Alison, if we could just have a couple of workers here just to pray with those. Amen. Anyone else who wants to pray? Why don't we all stand? Why don't we all stand? Hallelujah. If you feel the Lord speaking to you about any part of this message, I'm just going to lead everyone here in a sinner's prayer. But if you feel God speaking to you about part of the message, maybe God is speaking to you about your prayer life. You feel like you're on that boat without an oar. God's there. Just keep, keep praying. Keep believing God. Maybe God's dealing with you about your humility. You're kind of walking around carrying this thing yourself. Lest the Lord builds a house, so labour in vain. Maybe there's some specific sin that God is dealing you about. Maybe you just need to see God's face. Let God's favour and, and shine upon your life. Posture yourself with this will. Not my will, but your will be done. Surrender is the key. So I'm just going to pray a prayer. And you feel free to come down and pray as well if you want. Or you can pray along with me. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We come before you in, as sinners in need of mercy. Jesus, we ask you into our heart. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins and that you rose again. We receive you into our heart to be our Lord and Saviour. And we thank you, Lord, for saving us. 
In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Praise God. Let's give the Lord a clap offering, saints. Just worship Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.